It's good to see our college students coming back into town. We've missed you. You've been gone a long time, some of you. It seems like I don't remember getting that long a break in college, but uh, it's good to see you. We've missed you, and especially this week, it's good to have you back. A lot of our uh, high school kids are gone on a retreat, and uh, we miss them up here in the, the um, East Central um, congregation. And we, we talk about, we got the North, anyway, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 62. I've told you before that I follow a schedule of texts that's been traditional to the church for hundreds of years. And the reason I do that is because it uh, brings to light some texts that I probably wouldn't preach otherwise. I would just preach the ones I like all the time. Uh, but this way, the discipline makes me go into texts that perhaps I might overlook. And this particular text is one that probably, unless you're a very devoted uh, Isaiah reader, you might not have noticed before. So it gives me particular uh, thrill to bring this to our attention and uh, let this text be the word of God to us today. Let's be standing, please, as we hear this. God's word is presented to the nation of Israel by his faithful prophet Isaiah, and therefore God's word to us. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be crowned of splendor in the Lord's hand, be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. May God bless the reading of his word. I try anytime I stand up here and address you to speak the truth, do my best. Although today I'm going to start out with an absolute outright lie. Ready? Here it goes. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a lie. You can testify to that. Any of you in here ever been hurt by words? Sure you have. This text that we're looking at today is for those of you who've been hurt by words. Particularly, you've been hurt by names and labels that may have been attached to you. Now, I don't know if that covers everyone in here or not, but I know there's some of us in this room today that have suffered because either people on the outside have in some way pointed at us and said, you are blank. Or perhaps they said it, you are a, you fill in the blank. Or maybe it wasn't really necessarily someone blatantly calling you a name or assigning you a label. But just by the way, through your interactions with other people, you've come to your own conclusion. 
you know what? I'm this, or I'm a that. If you've ever been hurt by a name or label that's been attached to you, whether from the outside or from the inside, then this text is for you. This is a text about God addressing the problem of suffering from what other people think of us and what other people might call us. Now, this word was originally addressed to God's people way back in, what, the 5th century B.C. And these are a people who were really suffering. There are people who really had very little to feel good about themselves. There are people who had lost everything in a war a few decades before. Either they themselves, if they're older people, or their parents, or even for some of them, maybe their grandparents. A war had swept through their land, had destroyed all their public buildings, most of their houses. Many of their people had been killed. Many others had been taken and transported off to a foreign land to live. Some had stayed behind and scraped out just a a bare living out of the barren and dry ground that was there. And now, after many years, some had come back and there was a real effort to put this country back together and to rebuild their homeland, to rebuild their beloved city of Jerusalem. But as they were trying to do that, things were just not going very well. It was hard work. And they didn't have a lot of resources to pull on. They were very poor. And the problem, too, was that they really couldn't get along with each other. Especially those who had stayed behind, those who had gone away, had sort of drifted apart and developed different styles and ways of doing things. And now they're trying to get back together and work together. That wasn't going very well. But in particular, their problem was that they had a lot of opposition to this. There were people that lived around them that did not want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. And they were constantly throwing roadblocks in the way. And one of the things they liked to do was to point their fingers and call these people names. Well, you say, that doesn't hurt. Sticks and stones. Yeah, it does. It does hurt when someone puts you in a slot and says, That's who you are. Well, what are some of the names that were thrown out? We have a couple here, and the different translations do different things with these. So we're going to take them back to the Hebrew words that were being used as the people were pointing their fingers. So here are a couple of the names that are mentioned in the text that these people were being called. The first one's going to make you smile. Even though it's not a funny word, it kind of sounds funny, doesn't it, Brian? The first word that people were pointing at their fingers at these folks and saying is Shamama. You can smile at that. (laughs) Maybe we need to say it more Hebrew like Shamama. But they would point their fingers and say, you know who you are? You're Shamama. Well, what did that mean? When they were calling them that, they were saying you're desolate. You might have seen that word in the text. You're just a waste. You're nothing. You're just a waste of space, food, time, energy. You're a misfit. You don't belong. 
Another word that they pointed their fingers and said was Azuva. You are Azuva. Making fun of them saying, you're forsaken, abandoned. You're all alone. Nobody likes you. Nobody wants you here. Well, the problem is that the people were buying into this. And we can see that that's possible. We know it's possible to at times buy into what other people think we are and what other people are calling us. And if those descriptions are particularly vicious like these were, they can become paralyzing. Because just when you think you're getting things together, then someone reminds you who you really are. Or one of those inner voices in your head comes out and says, you know, you're, you're not that good. This is who you are. This is what you are. That's what's going on way back then in the 5th century. And it still goes on today. And God chose to address it to his people. And as we will see as we work toward the end, his word still comes down to us today to address this same problem in our lives as well. Well, how did God choose to address it? He says, I'm not going to be quiet anymore. Let me read that first verse again. He says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. God says, I've got to go talk to these people. I've got to tell them that what they're thinking about themselves is not right. That there is something better that they need to know about who they are and what's going on in their lives. He goes on to say, until her vindication shines out like the dawn. Now, if you really are listening really hard or you're following in your Bible, if you've got an NIV, you know the word I read a while ago was your righteousness. Until your righteousness shines out like the dawn. My version says your vindication. That's a real key. We need to have a lesson sometime on why righteousness is vindication and vindication is righteousness. That really, uh, there's a lot of depth there. But what it's saying is you need to be vindicated. You need to be put back on your feet. The right concept needs to be put into your head. And that's what righteousness is all about is, is being put right up again and right with God. And, 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 and here's how things really are. And God says, when I speak and tell you what I'm going to tell you, it'll put you back on your feet again. You'll be vindicated. It says, and her salvation will be like a burning torch by which they can see. Salvation. You know, salvation is not just what's going to happen someday up there in heaven. Salvation has to do with eternity and being with God in heaven. But it has much more to do with who we are right now and making us whole again and healthy again. And able to live lives that are meaningful and purposeful. And God says, I'm going to come down and talk to these people who have been called names, who have been hurt by other people's words, and I'm going to put them back on their feet. And I'm going to heal them so that they can keep going and live the lives I want them to live. Well, what is the word that he says? He says it in a very interesting way. Because basically what he does through his prophet Isaiah when he comes to his people, he gets down on one knee and says, marry me. I want to fix you. I want to change things in your life. And the way I'm going to do that is I want you to marry me. 
He says, to those of you who are suffering, who've been labeled, who are frustrated, who are paralyzed, my word to you, my plea to you is, marry me. To those of you who might think no one wants you, no one cares about you, I say to you, I want you, I care about you, I love you, marry me. Now, to our ears, that may sound a little strange, that God wants us to marry him. But he uses this figure several times, particularly in the Old Testament. Some of you who love the minor prophets, remember back the prophet Hosea? And how all of the prophecy of Hosea is built around this same idea of God's people being married to him. And it presents how God's people are not faithful to him. And they keep running off with other lovers. We have that, that woman, Gomer. And how she keeps running off and, and her husband keeps going back and reclaiming her and asking her to be faithful and to marry him. Jeremiah uses this same figure of speech as well. And he talks about how God's people have been proposed to, that that God wants to marry his people. And they say yes, but then they just forget. They forget they said yes to God. And they just go on and live their lives for themselves. And, And in the prophet Jeremiah in the second chapter, some very poignant language where God is saying, how can a bride forget that she promised to marry me? How can a bride forget her wedding? How can a bride forget to to buy a wedding dress? That just doesn't make sense to me. If you say you want to marry me, marry me. And then here in Isaiah, it pops up again. And this is to a people, as we've said, who just feel like no one wants them. No one likes them. And God says, I do. In fact, I love you so much. I want you to marry me. Now, after he introduces that theme, he works on a couple of particular things about marriage. There's a lot of ways that we might could apply that, but in this particular text, it's applied in two ways. One is that God says, if you will marry me, I'll change your name. We go, oh yeah, that's what happens in marriage, isn't it? Even though in our modern culture we have some that kind of resist that idea of a bride changing her name, the tradition sort of endures anyway, doesn't it? Because two are becoming one, and and they take the same name. And God says, that will happen if you will agree to marry me, I will change your name. I will give you a new name. And in this case, it's a wonderful change indeed. God says, instead of being called Azuvah, forsaken, alone, I'll change your name to Hefzibah, which means my delight is in you. You are the one that makes me smile. You're the one that puts the twinkle in my eye. You're the one I enjoy spending time with. You're not alone. You're my delight. And as the second name, he says, no longer will you be called Shemama, desolate, rejected. You will be called Beulah, married. You will be identified as one that someone wanted. And not just someone, 
but God himself. Beulah. Used to sing an old hymn. Anybody know it? Oh, Beulah land, sweet Beulah land. I've reached the land of corn and wine. All of that comes out of, out of Isaiah 62. Still hear my grandmother singing that soprano note. Oh, Beulah land, sweet Beulah. That's about how she sounded, too. <laughs> she didn't have much of a voice, but she had a great lap to sit in, I tell you. It was good. God says, I'll change your name. You know, having your name changed is a powerful thing. I've uh, been around girls sometimes that just become engaged and have watched them as they sit and practice writing their new name. I confessed to first service today that one time I just happened to be in my sister's room when she wasn't there. I don't know. I just opened my, there I was, you know, and, and it just happened to see she had some of her things lying out. and I just happened to look at them. And she was sitting there writing her name as if she was married to the boy she was dating at the time. You know, Mrs. She didn't marry that guy, so that never was her name. But she practiced it out because her name was going to change. Well, I tell you what, a lot of us would like to have our names changed. From who we've been. From who we think we are. From who other people have called us. The labels that they've given us. And God says, no. If you'll marry me. I'll change that name. You'll have my name. The second thing about marriage that he really brings out in the text is the joy. Sort of does that with the name. But listen to this final verse that we read, verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God Rejoice over you. You know, some of us have these little voices inside of us that says, God doesn't really want me. Or if he wants me, he kind of wants me, and he will sort of take me begrudgingly and hold on to me as long as I, you know, keep my nose clean. And, but he's going to sort of keep looking for a way to get rid of me. You're wrong. God wants you to marry him. God wants to join with you. To give you that new name. And if you will agree to do that. He will rejoice over you. He will laugh. He will be giddy. You ever visit with a bridegroom at the reception. Don't ever visit with the bridegroom right before the wedding. Because they're bonkers at that time. Uh, every wedding I ever do. It seems like I'm worried that the bride, most of the bridegrooms. Uh, I don't know if they're going to make it or not. I've had a couple of them almost go down on me. Now, the brides are always tuned right in. They're soaking it all up, right? They, they remember every moment. But go ahead and skip over to the reception when it's all done. And this guy knows that that girl is his and that they're married. All smiles. God says that kind of joy is what's in my heart. When you agree, you will be mine. I'll give you that new name. And I'll rejoice over you. Don't let this world tell you who you are. And don't let this little inner voice that you may have developed tell you who you are. Let God tell you who you are. And you are his. Now, this text, I told you, comes over into the New Testament. It's an interesting thing. There's a lot of the same language gets picked up in other places. But traditionally, this text has always been paired with the New Testament text out of the Gospel of John. 
And that text is John chapter 2, the first part. And that text is about the first miracle that Jesus performed. Now you've got it in mind, don't you? What is the first sign that Jesus performed? Do you know? Turning water into wine. And sometimes we think about that and think, well, that's, that of all of Jesus' miracles, that seems to be the most strange miracle. I mean, we can understand why Jesus would want to heal the sick and raise the dead and stop the storms and all those miracles. Those make sense, but water into wine? And why would that be the first miracle? Well, one of the answers to that question is it's because of texts like this in Isaiah. To let us know that the marriage is on because that miracle happened at a wedding and Jesus now has become the bridegroom and he invites us to come and to be with him and to celebrate with great joy you know Jesus made 120 gallons of wine some of us Church of Christ folks we go whoa (laughs) why did you do well it's joy and it's celebration because that's what he wants he invites you to come to him And to no longer listen to how other people define you, let him define you. Let him tell you who you are. Until your vindication shines like the dawn, until your salvation shines like a burning torch, and you wear the name of God. We're going to stand up here in a moment and sing a song. And I don't know what you came with your heart, in your heart, and what you've been struggling with. Some of our leaders are going to stand around on the edges at the back of this auditorium, And that's your invitation, to go and to find one of them, to let him pray with you, to bless your life, to to help you with any steps you may need to take as you move closer to God. But don't leave here thinking that you're not loved and cared for. Don't ever think that what others might say about you is true. What is true is what God says. Let's stand and sing.